Hi, friend. You are listening to the Finding Something Real podcast, a podcast created especially for someone who's not sure about relationship with Jesus Christ. My name is Janelle Wood, and while I have a background in counseling and ministry with women, the truth is I've been through my own seasons of questioning my faith. So if you've ever struggled with not being sure where you belong, or you felt like you were faking faith, or maybe a friend just shared this episode with you and you are feeling a little wounded or skeptical of all things God-related right now, welcome. This podcast is just for you. Finding Something Real is about a journey towards restoration, eternity, authenticity, and love. My passion is Jesus Christ, and for me now, after having been through some real ups and downs on my own faith journey, I believe Christ is the hope and the answer to this world more than ever. But don't take my word for it. Listen to my friends as they share their own grace-filled journeys with you. My prayer is that if you haven't already, you'll find something real too. So welcome back to the Finding Something Real podcast. This is your host, Janelle Wood. And today we're back with this month's special co-host, my March Italian co-host, Lucrezia. Lou, welcome back. (laughs) It's so early in the morning, I almost said your full name. (laughs) I never call her Lucrezia, just so you know. (laughs) How are you, Lou? It's a beautiful name. It's a beautiful name. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Uh, how are you doing? What time is it where you're at? Oh, it's actually 3 p.m. So oh, okay. it's, it's it's an okay time for me, yeah. but I think it's pretty early for you. It's 6 a.m., um, which is it's fine. Early. It's fine, but obviously <laughs> it's not. <laughs> um, so, friend, once again, I'm excited you're listening in for season four, where you may already know that I've been inviting co-hosts and guests on to share their individual stories and also asking guests to address some of my co-hosts' honest questions. And my March co-host, Lou, has been honest about her doubts uh, surrounding faith, and she has some amazing questions. So if you haven't already listened to the episode where she shared some of her personal story and those questions she has about Christianity, I strongly encourage you to please go back and take a listen. We'll make sure there's a link in today's show notes. Also, friend, if you like what we're doing here on the Finding Something Real podcast and you're a regular listener, I want to encourage you to keep this show on the air with your financial support. For as little as $5 a month, you can become a patron. We have some really special content that you get when you sign up uh, as a patron, including a bonus episode each month and things like custom stickers, which are my personal favorite. So more information can be found on my website at findingsomethingreal.com. Now today... I am especially excited to welcome someone who I have been secretly wanting to invite on this podcast for some time uh, before I actually reached out to her. And if you listen to this podcast on a regular basis, um, you know that I'm an exchange student coordinator and I call myself an exchange student mama. And all of my exchange daughters have been on this podcast at one point or another. What you might not know is that in some ways, my whole journey into hosting students happened one weekend about five years ago. I was at a women's retreat in Cannon Beach, Oregon, and I remember just staring out at the ocean and asking God, just use me. I had been reading a book called Crazy Love in addition to the Bible, and I wanted to be all in. And my husband and I knew that we wanted to open up our home in some way, but we had no idea what that might look like. 
well, unbeknownst to me at that time, God is, <laughs> God is full of surprises. Uh, God did a bit of foreshadowing that weekend. Not only did I come across a poster for hosting exchange students at a coffee shop that made me go, hmm, I also had a very memorable conversation with a French shop owner who seemed to pity me for my faith. I ended up giving him my Bible and sharing a bit about Jesus Christ with him, and he in turn shared some of his life story with me which was one of those, wow, that was an amazing experience. I will never forget moments. And John, if you ever listen to this, I just want you to know that God loves you. But anyway, those catalysts surrendering my all to God, seeing a sign about hosting exchange students and sharing stories in Jesus with someone of a different culture, in a lot of ways led me to hosting, which led me to blogging, which led me to podcasting, which led me to this moment right here. And now that I've told you a bit of a flyover backstory, you'll know why I'm so excited to welcome today's guest and have a conversation with her, M. Lou. Born and raised in France, our guest today has lived over the last two decades on three continents, four countries, and five cities through six professional roles. Her current Gospel Spice Ministries team is made of seven women. She is a wife, mom, podcaster, public speaker, Bible teacher, former women's ministry director, and strategy consultant, and she is 100% French. She has quoted these favorite words more times than she can count. Quote, there's nothing you can do for God to love you more, and there's nothing you can do for God to love you less. I love that, and Lou and I are excited to welcome to the Finding Something Real podcast, Stephanie Roussel. Stephanie, welcome. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here, Janelle. What a story you have. <laughs> What an incredible story. I love how God weaves our stories together uh, so that we can delight in what he's doing. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Well, Stephanie, I have to tell you, I've listened to you share your story now. It's so funny because you were on my radar for a little while. I remember, I think I saw you in Clubhouse. Are you on there? The Clubhouse yes. app? I think I saw you in there and I read your bio. I think it said something about, uh, you know, being French and loving Jesus. And I was like, ooh, that would be a really interesting guest someday. And then God is so funny because he kept on putting you on my radar. And you were on Tim Winder's uh, podcast, uh, Seek, Go, Create. And I listened to that and I almost cried. I might have cried listening to your story. And then you were also on my friend Amber's podcast, um, Grace is enough, I think. And I'll, I'll put links to both of those episodes. And I started to listen to your story on there as well. And I'm just like, oh, God, you're amazing. So I had no choice but to reach out to you. That's pretty much how it worked out. So. It's, it's an honor. And it's really fun because I don't get to, I mean, I guess I get to share the foreign exchange part of my story, but it's often not the center. On podcasts, I talk about it a lot, but in real life, not all that much. So it's really fun. Yeah. Um, well, Stephanie, you what have... you're doing is unique, just so you know, what you're doing is absolutely unique. And I always encourage people, if you can take on a foreign exchange student, do it for all sorts of reasons. Uh, but for me, it was definitely life changing. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, I definitely feel like it was a God thing for sure. He led us directly to, uh, and I tell that to all my exchange students, right, Lou? You knew all that story. Some of it. Yeah. <laughs> it's a I'm good like... story, though. I really like the story. Yeah. <laughs> You didn't know about the Frenchman, though, did you? Had no, I told you, you didn't. That? You didn't tell me about a Frenchman. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. was cool. And now he follows me on Instagram. It's very possible he could listen to this later. It's possible. Who well, knows? I should talk to him in French a little bit. Yeah, you should. <laughs> no one else would get it. But <laughs> go ahead, say something to him right now, just in case he listens. 
Jean, il faut absolument écouter ce que Janelle a à te dire parce que c'est beaucoup plus important que tout ce que tu peux imaginer. Oh my gosh. Okay. That sounds so good. Okay. It does. <laughs> We already love this interview. It's, like... it's, it's pretty. Okay. All right, Stephanie, I know I want to definitely hear your story. Would you share about your faith journey? And uh, yeah, we'd mm -hmm. love to hear it. Sure. Uh, so as you can hear, you know, obviously I'm French. I grew up in France. So even though right now I live in the U.S., I grew up in France in a very typical middle-class French family. And in my case, it meant an atheist family. So very atheist, with the one exception of my beloved uh, grandmother, who was a very strong Catholic. And I do believe a strong Christian. Uh, but with her exception, uh, everyone else was an atheist. So I never went to church growing up. Actually, I was kind of taught that the church is um, a powerhouse for people who are seeking power and it's uh, that religion is completely invented. It's not true at all. So I've heard a little bit of, of Lou's story and it's very different in the sense that I was always taught to beware of the church and of all forms of religion that God does not exist. It is a concept that has been invented by men who are either too weak to live in their own strength or who are seeking power and are using gullible religious people to just harness influence over them. So not a very pretty picture of God and, and religious people and people who have faith as people who have faith as being stupid, ignorant, um, lesser than. And uh, so very arrogant, I think maybe very French in some ways. <laughs> yeah, because I I've am French. French. Um, and, uh, yeah, I can get away with saying that kind of stuff. And if Jean is listening, I'm sorry, but, but, you know, there's some truth. He probably has to agree with me. At some I think level. from Montreal. It's okay. Um, so just growing up that way and also really growing up, um, I, I would say the key value was, um, wrenching success from the world mm. for yourself and that idea of nothing is off limits as long as you are successful and setting really high standards for yourself and also um i somewhat of an intellectual family so debating ideas was always very important uh but always within the framework of atheism and uh humanism really is is the the only viable smart intelligent coherent uh, perspective on the world. And so this led me to wanting to have a career in business. And so that had been my focus. And to do that, I one of the skills I lacked was speaking English because the French schools are extremely good at teaching you grammar and Latin and Greek and math and philosophy, but not languages too much. <laughs> We're not very good at teaching uh, foreign languages. And so I realized in order to be in business, I needed uh, some pretty good English skills and therefore spending a lengthy season of time in an Anglophone country, being immersed in the culture really made a lot of sense. And I think that's, I would assume, I mean, a lot of the foreign exchange students I was with at the time, that was kind of a primary reason was to really be good in it, become really, really proficient in English. Mm -hmm. um, so this led me to spending my senior year of high school in the US. It, it was a, uh, looking back, I could see, now I can see how the hand of God was on all of it. And I'm not gonna bore you with the details, but it's a crazy story of God opening doors and closing doors unbeknownst to me, because I was actively denying his existence at the time, but nonetheless him 
making things happen. So a series of coincidences, quote unquote, that add up being so many coincidences that it would take more faith to believe that they're coincidences than to believe they're actually God ordaining mm. our steps. And so that led me to spending my entire year, my senior year of high school in the U.S. in an American host family. So real quick. Did you know anything about your host family before you came? And did you have any right. preconceived ideas about an American family before you came? Great question. Yes, yes, and yes. <laughs> so I, this was pre-internet, all right? So Lou, no internet, no email, no Zoom, no podcast, none of this stuff. <laughs> like, we were not quite the Stone Age girl, but something close to that. At least that's what my kids tell me, that it sounds like the Stone Age. Uh, pre-internet. You know, emails weren't even a thing or barely, maybe. Um, so this was all snail mail. So for several months before I actually moved there, we exchanged letters and photos and just the good old, you know, handwritten letters. Um, so I knew they were uh, a young couple with three young children. So that did not make sense for them to take a 16-year-old girl. Uh, I was not an au pair. I mean, they weren't paying me to watch their kids or anything. <laughs> but they really, uh, I, I never really did because I was not into babysitting at all, actually. Uh, but they were adorable kids. Uh, and they they were toddlers. I mean, they had three, basically three toddlers. And um, how the Lord ordained that. But they, they were strong believers, for sure. Mm -hmm. And they... I knew that uh, they had expressed that in their letters and I thought it was cute. I thought it was part of the American culture. Uh, in my French upbringing, there was this idea that a lot of Christians, a lot of Americans are Christians and that's just part of the culture. And that was okay. And for me, I was picturing maybe going to church for Easter and for Christmas. And um, I didn't really know again, because I did not have any experience with church. I didn't really know what to expect, but I, I mean, growing up in France, in Catholic France, I mean, I grew up with those gorgeous buildings and very empty churches that are gorgeous, but that really don't have anyone in them really. Mm. Uh, so that was kind of what I was picturing. Um, and so I was very, um, so, so yeah, I just assumed it was part of the culture. I didn't really think much of it <laughs> um, beyond that. So what happened is that when I moved in with them, they did not um, start right away by talking about their faith. You know, we just started meeting and just getting to know each other. And they were sweet, very sweet and kind and loving. Uh, and they, for several months, I just discovered life in the States. It was very different. Uh, my English was incredibly broken. I made all sorts of very silly mistakes in English that just crack me up even to this day, some expressions that I used that were completely wrong. But I'm sure, Lou, you can relate to like just learning what it means to learn the language and make mistakes and some words uh, in yeah. French or in Italian that are just, it just doesn't work and you think it does and then it, it just doesn't. And so, you yeah. You say it loud and it makes no sense. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so, so that was, and they were very loving and caring. And so they were also very bold about their faith. I mean, they weren't apologetic about it. And I quickly discovered it wasn't just a veneer. It wasn't just a culture. It wasn't just a superstition, maybe. Uh, maybe a warding off you know, of bad things through some kind of ritual, I realized very quickly that, my goodness, they're serious about this. And this is, um, it struck me that it was fundamental to their identity. Mm. And I have never met anyone who's considered faith as fundamental to their identity. Interestingly, I was probably, unbeknownst to me, considering my atheism as 
kind of the core of my identity too. So I was doing the same thing because atheism is, is a form of faith, right? I mean, it's a, it's a belief system. Um, and so it, it was just very interesting to meet people who were real Christians for the first time. And the truth is I had never really heard what the Bible really teaches or what Christians, like real Christians, not nominal, not superstitious, not people who grew up in a Christian culture, which I think all of us have grown up in a Christian culture, whether we we acknowledge it, whether we choose it as our own or not. Um, Italy is, you know, Christian Judeo Judeo Christian heritage very strongly. France is the same way, and so. But growing up in it doesn't make you a Christian at all. You're not born. No one is born a Christian. This is a choice you make, um, and so it was interesting to to meet people for, who had made that choice and. It was real to them and it forced me to consider, well, you know, what about it could actually be true potentially? Because the other thing I realized, much to my surprise, uh, here's the arrogant 17 year old talking, um, they were smart. Like they were actually intelligent people, really intelligent people. And we had numerous conversations. I would not call them debates because there was no harshness to it. It was just a very, Interest, both parties were really interested in discovering what the other believed and thought and how that shaped their view of the world. Um, and they were really smart. And that was such a surprise to me. Honestly, I, I didn't think you could be have a solid faith um, and be truly a reasonable person, like not check your brains at the door. Because uh, it's one thing to believe in superstition, and but it's another to, to believe intelligently in your faith. And um, that led me to, to ponder what could be true in what they were believing. And um, because I'm, I have more of an intellectual mindset, facts really spoke to me. And so for me, you know, I, I think it was, it was actually around Easter time, which is right around now. Um, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is what, what I was just it was a stumbling block for me. It really was something that I was struggling with because if Jesus Christ truly died and truly rose from the dead, people don't do that. Like people do not rise from the dead. Uh, that just doesn't happen. Therefore, it can't be true. Therefore, it's a superstition. Unless it's actually true. And my problem revolved around the fact that the more I dove into the reasons for the resurrection from a purely intellectual perspective, I was not interested in becoming a Christian or in believing what they were believing. I was interested in the truth. Um, I think intellectual integrity is very important. Uh, when you discover something that is true, even if you don't like it, you still have to pursue it. Mm. You can't just bury it because you don't like what you're discovering. Wherever it is, truth has to be the supreme quest. And for me, truth, my quest for truth led me to realize that intellectually speaking, the resurrection actually happened historically. It's a historical fact grounded in faith and evidence. Mm -hmm. Now, I had a real problem with that because that was exactly the opposite of what I believed. So what do you do when facts tell you one thing and you ponder them intellectually and you don't want to believe them? You want, you're like thoroughly after what's not true in them. But the more you dig, the more you realize, oh, I really have a problem here because it's true. And then the fact that you really don't want to believe it. Mm. So I, for me, it was, well, either I'm going to bury my head in the sand and just ignore what I have discovered to be true, or I'm going to be 
honest with myself and 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 go go where this leads and it was a real battle for me to decide intellectually what to do with the truth of the resurrection and i i literally lost sleep over it for a long time for weeks and weeks because i i couldn't reconcile in my heart how it could be possible for jesus christ to have truly died and truly resurrected which at that point i believed to be true intellectually but i wasn't ready to live with the consequences of that truth namely because if he actually did then the least i can do is listen a little bit to what he has said mm. because he's if he really rose from the dead then he deserves five minutes of my attention i mean to put it mildly and therefore, that led me to look at what else he had said and who he really was and what the resurrection proved of who he was and to discover just a, a, a bottomless well of, of truth, of humility, of gentleness, of power, of beauty that I just had no idea was even possible. Uh, and that became very intriguing and that led me to a place of having to decide what to do with this person I had encountered who was so different from, um, was miles away from all of the perceived conceptions I had of faith and religion and Christianity when I had grown up in France. Um, that Jesus Christ had nothing, that Jesus Christ I was meeting on the pages of scripture had nothing to do with the Jesus I could see in crucifixes in churches or that I could see in people who called themselves Christians, quote unquote, and who had done, you know, the crusades and the inquisition and all of that. And how did I reconcile that was by realizing that what I had seen growing up was actually not a true rendition of who Jesus Christ truly was. He had been misportrayed. Mm. And that's okay. I'm not blaming anyone. I'm just saying... I came to the realization that because he had risen from the dead, therefore the rest of the stuff about him that he had said was true. And that led me to realize I had never actually been able to, I had never encountered him um, growing up. And so that forced me to go back to square one and to say what I thought I knew about faith and Christianity was actually a misportrait of truth. And therefore, now that I have this better representation of what Christianity really is, of who Jesus Christ really is, then I'm better informed to make a decision. Um, the my, my great struggle then was with the fact that I'm very self, I was, I still am working on that, <laughs> self-sufficient um, person. I like to be in charge of my life because I call that the curse of the capable woman. And I'm sure uh, Lou and Janelle, you can relate to that. When you have many gifts and talents, then it's very easy to learn to rely on yourself because that's what the world teaches you. Um, and And here, that's actually the opposite of what Jesus teaches us. He says, um, if we want to follow him, if we want to embrace who he really is, then he's going to demand everything from us. And the first thing he's going to demand is, well, if he is a better coach for our life than we can be for our own life, then the first thing he's going to ask is that we surrender uh, the leadership of our own lives to him, which is which for a control freak, self-sufficient person is a very difficult thing to do. Um, so what I did is that I gave God a trial chance. Um, I, I was like, okay, Lord, God, I believe at this point that what the Bible says about you is true. 
Uh, but the truth is, I don't know enough to know if you are trustworthy. For me, it became an issue of trust. Uh, it's one thing to know that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. It's another to draw the line in my own life to saying, okay, that means I'm giving my life over to you. Mm. There's a huge difference. Um, and the, for me, the difference there is trust. The fact that he rose from the dead garners enough trust that I'm going to look into who he is a little more. I don't know that it garners enough trust to surrender to him and to say, okay, you're the boss and I'm going to be the co-pilot in my life from this point forward. I wasn't ready to do that. That sounded very scary because I didn't know if God was trustworthy. What if he was mean to me? What if he really did not have my best interests at heart? I mean, I've seen so much evil in the world. If he made that happen, how do I know he's not going to do that to me too and, and ring evil in my life? Um, so, but on the other hand, I was beginning to pile up enough evidence that maybe he wasn't like that. Maybe there was more of an explanation. Maybe if I dug a bit more, if I scratched beyond the surface, I would find answers that were very different from what I thought I was going to find. Um, and so that led me to give God one week. <laughs> I don't recommend that, but that's, I have to be humble about it. That's, I don't have this like phenomenal experience with God where he just got us showed up in, you know, in light and power and thunder. Nope. It was just totally humble and there's nothing to it. But I told God, okay, I kind of think this is, there's something about you that is very compelling, but I'm not sure I can really, really trust you. So I'm going to tr trust you for one week, but and, and for one week, I'm going to be all in and I'm really going to believe that like, I'm going to stop fighting intellectually. Again, this was an intellectual battle. I'm going to stop fighting intellectually what I'm beginning to discover is true. But if at the end of the week, I don't like what it feels like to follow you, to, what it feels like from the inside, because um, I love chocolate, right? And if you've never had really yummy chocolate, if you've only had the cheap, you know, supermarket chocolate, American chocolate is not good, Janelle. I'm sorry. I'm sure Lou would have to agree with me on that. I know. They send me chocolate all the time from Europe. So that's like, okay, if you've never tasted real good Italian or French or Swiss or Belgian chocolate, you have no idea what chocolate really is. I'm sorry to say. And I hope it's not the arrogant French it's talking. Not. I just European think it's true, chocolate right? is better. It's the arrogant European, European, I think the same way. So I think it's, uh, maybe it's us. I don't know. Da -da. I, I attest. Well, that's, that's my point. If you've only had, and I'm not going to, you know, name the Pennsylvanian brand because I live in Pennsylvania. So I would hear, but it's like, this is not chocolate. I'm sorry. It's not because it's called a kiss that it's a chocolate. It's not. It's just gross. Anyway, sorry. I just lost your audience right there. If you love this. <laughs> but if you've never, if the only kind of chocolate you've ever had on your life is called a kiss, you are missing out because you have no idea what real chocolate is like. And the only way for you, it doesn't matter how much Lou and I describe to you how amazing real chocolate is. If you've never tasted it, there's no way I can describe to you the flavors and the experience of like this. Uh, my mouth is watering right now. <laughs> um, but like, there's no way there comes a point where it's okay that we describe it to you, but there comes a point where you're going to have to take a bite for yourself. Mm -hmm. And once you take that bite, then you can decide whether you like it or not. And that was a little bit of my approach. It's like I was willing to take a bite off of God for a week to see what it was like. Mm. But if I didn't like it, I was arrogant enough to say, well, I'm going to spit you. I'll spit you back out if I don't like it. And, and the crazy part is that God in his sovereignty and his greatness and his humility 
accepted that. Hmm. Like God will always allow us to come to him on our own terms because he, he has no insecurities. He has nothing to hide and he would take us as we are. And he took this arrogant, bragging, um, intellectually very secure young woman for a week. And I'm telling you, it was like tasting chocolate in the sense that I had been fighting intellectually what I had at this point known to be true for some time, but I wasn't willing to accept it. But for a week, I was able to lay down my weapon, lay down my armor and just rest and take a break from all of my intellectual fighting within myself mm-hmm. with what I was discovering to be the truth of God. Wow. And when you're fighting, it's exhausting. So I want to ask one follow-up clarifying thing, and then I'm going to let Lou just take it away with whatever yep. she wants to ask. But what made you decide as an intellectually, um, I don't want to say the word arrogant, but somebody who, who, who oh, yeah, go ahead. Who didn't you feel go a for need, <laughs> didn't feel a need for this Jesus. I did not. Right? Correct. How, I did not at why all. Why did you keep on pursuing the truth of the resurrection because I obviously we've hosted exchange students I've had lots of conversations about faith with young women that I love um why not just close the book before you get to some of those answers like why did you keep digging is that part of your nature to be like I just I actually really need to know this I mean a lot of people and I'm not just calling out girls that I know but people in general will say I don't want to actually look I don't want to know yeah. It'd be better not to know because that would mess up my life. It would. And I agree. And um, if it will. Yeah. It, it will mess up your life. So but you in do a it? good way. <laughs> exactly. It, it, it totally will mess up your life. But that's the thing. Are you that sure that the life you're living is the very best possible version of your life right now? Mm. And if it's, what if you're missing out? What if you think you've tasted chocolate, but actually you haven't? How do you know that? How do you know you're actually living the fullest life that you could possibly live. And so it's just, there's a measure of humility. And again, for me, I think it was, um, part of it was my American mom and dad, the way, the, the way they loved each other. Because you see, it wasn't just something I was seeing in the pages of a book uh, that at the time for me was just a regular book, right? right? The Bible. And it was the, I was seeing it lived out in my American mom and dad because they were loving to me. They were kind and respectful. They weren't perfect. That's the other thing is that they never pretended to need to be any better than they actually were. There was a humility to their relationship with one another, with their kids, with me, where there was a transparency. They dared to be themselves, warts and all, and they weren't ashamed of it. Whereas for me in my culture of striving and always being the best version of yourself as you possibly knew to do, um, there wasn't a lot of room for weaknesses. And they showed me that being imperfect is okay. And it's actually only possible when you you ground your identity, not in yourself, not in your achievements, not in your resume, not in whatever, but in God. Mm. And so they, they, they showed me it was possible. That's what they did. So it wasn't just an intellectual approach. It was also, you know, I was doing this while being surrounded by this American family who were very open uh, they never forced anything on me. They didn't brainwash me at all. Um, and I know that because I actually didn't come to faith until the end of my year with them. So if they had been, you know, brainwashing me, then it, I mean, and this was 30 years ago, so I would have had time to change my mind. <laughs> um, I think. 
and and that's the other beauty of it. I mean, thirty almost thirty years in, um, it's more true today to me than it was thirty years ago. Mm. That's the thing is that I was so afraid that I would scratch the veneer of Christianity and fi find it lacking, that I would scratch and like get to the bottom of it and find that it was empty. Lou, I've been on an intellectual quest to discover who God is for almost 30 years. And the more I dig in the Bible, the more I dig in my relationship with him, the more I realize I have barely scratched the surface. And I've been digging pretty hard for 30 years. Um, he is more true and more who he is, who he truly is. I, am, I see it more today than I did 30 years ago. And the more I dig, the less disappointed I am, the more enthralled I am. And it's like chocolate. You can never, when, you know, you, you can never have enough or too much, or it's, it never disappoints you. That's the, like, I don't know how to say this, but God will never disappoint you. It doesn't mean, okay, he's going to do all sorts of things. If you surrender the reins of your life to him, he's going to do all sorts of things you don't expect. You're not going to live the life you're envisioning for yourself today. You're not. You're going to live a much better version of it. It will be very different than what you're envisioning. But how do you know that what you're envisioning is the very best that you could live? He will, you know, upend things and, and he's going to change things around and things are going to happen that you had never expected. And, and maybe your greatest fear will come to pass. But he's going to be faithful through it all. And at the end of the day, 30 years in, you'll be able to say, I love God today way more than I could ever have imagined was possible 30 years ago. And I cannot wait to see what the 30 years hold. Mm. Nothing, nothing can change. There's nothing more precious than that. So. Um, I really, I really related to a lot of things you said. Um, I mean, I, I feel like growing up in Italy, I kind of had the opposite experience. Um, like everybody being technically Christian, but nobody really being that because it was superstition or tradition and just culture. So um, going to the U.S., I kind of expected the same thing. Like, oh, yeah, well, I'll go to church, but like, it's not going to be a big deal. Um, turns out, it, turns out, like, they are really Christians. And, and as you said, it was like meeting someone, meeting a Christian for the first time. Um, you said something about no one is born a Christian, but that's kind of the mindset I grew up in. Mm -hmm. You know, like um, you get baptized when you're like two months old maximum, right? So it's kind of like, it's so it was really from even an intellectual point of view, it was really interesting to see how we can work um, in a way that just you do it because you really want to. And um, so I, I felt like it was really intellectually inspiring and like eye-opening on that, um, from that point of view for sure. So yeah, I, I really related to what you said about that and um, but I, I do have a question though it might be kind of technical I guess I don't know uh, but you said that you quite easily came to the conclusion that um, the resurrection happened like you had no doubts about that 
-hmm. and because there's evidence and so and how <laughs> like uh, <laughs> it's a general question but like um that's i feel like you said there's evidence and all of that but I, that's something i kind of struggle finding like um the only evidence i see is the fact that people believe in it but people believe in all kind of different stuff and it doesn't mm -hmm. make it true mm -hmm. so my question is just yeah in your experience um where did you find um that evidence that actually convinced you that it happened yeah uh we can definitely talk about that um I wasn't overnight, right? It was a lengthy process. It was reading books, uh, more than a carpenter, Josh McDowell, Janelle, you definitely have to send this to Lou, um, mm -hmm. among other books, but like the case for case for Christ, least trouble. You have to send that to her. Um, so here's the thing. You have to like I, I came to the realization that maybe what I had been uh taught my entire life about Christianity. Maybe that wasn't true. So the whole superstition, the whole nominal thing, the whole you come to you go to church or you don't or, you know, atheism or whatever. But I I think, you know, being immersed in a, in a Christian family for some time, as you have been, it forces you to reconsider your preconceived ideas and to think, OK, maybe there's another way to look at this. Right. Yeah. Do you agree with that, yeah. Lou? So. And it's like, okay, everything I've ever known, everything I've ever experienced, maybe my culture, because that's what we've all experienced, maybe my culture has not taught me the truth on this particular point, to be open to the fact that maybe my culture is wrong on this thing, right? And yeah. so, uh, and, and that's the beauty, by the way, right, of being uh, extracted from your culture and to be placed, boop, just dropped in another culture. It forces you to realize that, Oh my goodness, all the things we think, right? Have you noticed that, Lou, how our mindset is so shaped by the culture that we grew up in? Yeah. And we and don't realize it until we're plucked out of it. Yeah, you just, you feel like that's how everybody thinks. But instead, you're like, you discover a whole new world and find out that, no, <laughs> it's not every, how everybody um, processes information right? and stuff. Exactly. And that's exactly what happened to me with the resurrection, because I had never thought of the resurrection. Like, I, I, I had never really thought about it before, except to think, well, obviously it can't happen because people don't rise from the dead. And like you said, it's not because people believe it's true. I mean, people believe in Santa Claus and in the unicorns and in the fairy, you know, they believe in the, in the tooth fairy, right? Um in, in France, it's a tooth, ma tooth mouse, by the way. What is it we in have Italy? A mouse. We have, we have yeah. the mouse too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, we have the tooth, ma tooth mouse, which is a mouthful. That's a hard thing to say. That's a tongue twister. Um, but that, it doesn't mean, it's not because all the kids believe in Santa and in the tooth, tooth mouse uh, that it's true, right? Um, what if the resurrection like, what if there was more to this Jesus than just, you know, what the culture portrays? And so um, I looked at, first, you can start by, look. there's many ways to, to think about it, but um, how did the first people, how did the people react to the resurrection? If it actually happened, one way you want to know, like, you know, to... In an accident scene, you want to talk to the witnesses, right? You want to talk to the people who, who have been there or who've seen it. And one of the 
you know, I don't know, top reasons that made me wonder whether there was more to it that intrigued me. Because I think, Lou, the secret is in, are you willing to be intrigued by it? Are you willing, are you curious enough? Are you open-minded? Are you willing to challenge your culture enough to dig a little deeper, to not just, as Janelle was saying, close the book and just kind of forget about it? Because I'm telling you, Lou, you will be missing out on chocolate if you don't take a bite, if you don't dare to investigate the truth of the resurrection. Um, I can tell you fair and square that it has completely altered my life for the better. Um, so when someone makes a radical claim like it has completely changed my life, I think it could potentially warrant digging a little bit. And the thing is, I'm saying, I'm saying this to you because that's exactly what the very first disciples of Jesus experienced. Um, if you look at the life of Peter or Paul, uh, let's, take, let's look at Peter. Peter was a complete coward, which I know is not taught in the Catholic Church, but I'm sorry, that's what the Bible teaches. Yeah. Uh, in the Bible, Peter comes across as this complete coward who is this very, uh, he's this bigger than life character who is very full of himself and very sure of himself, right? He tells Jesus, I'm never going to deny you. I'm going to protect you. Like he is portrayed as the person who is full, like he's full of strength and he is this protector, which is a, a sweet thing, but there's no point in protecting Jesus. Jesus can take care of himself. Thank you. But Peter doesn't know that. And so Peter in his love for Jesus just really is very protective of him and is like, I'm going to go to the cross with you. I'm never going to deny you. And of course, Peter denies Jesus three times. And this is after things like seeing the transfiguration. This is after walking on water. This is, I mean, Peter walked on water, right? Not because Peter is a saint or because Peter is awesome, but because Jesus is awesome. Uh, and, and despite all of this, despite three years of being with Jesus, of being in his inner circle of, um, like I said, walking on water, seeing the 5,000 being fed by the fish and the loaves, like all sorts of miracles by listening to Jesus, who was a pretty amazing guy for three years. Despite all of this, Peter deserts Jesus on the cross. He denies him. He runs away. He denies even knowing him. He is like, he's a complete turncoat. He's a complete coward. And he hides until Easter Sunday. He doesn't know Jesus is going to resurrect. And you see him a little bit later on Pentecost where he is boldly proclaiming that Jesus actually rose from the dead. And he actually lived the rest of his life to the point of dying an upside down cross uh, because he would not deny that Jesus had risen from the dead. This is the same guy who, after having seen amazing things, still denied Jesus. So the transfiguration was not enough. Walking on water was not enough to make him believe that Jesus was God. Um, like the miracles were not enough. Nothing was enough. The cross was not enough to make him believe. It took the resurrection and, the, and him seeing what the resurrection was at Pentecost for him to go, oh my goodness, this guy was the real deal. Jesus really rose from the dead. So if you look at Peter, his life makes a complete 180, not because of the life of Christ but because Jesus rose from the dead. And Peter bases that very clearly, if you read what he wrote, on the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. So as far as someone who had gone the gamut of the spectrum of um, denying and then believing, so, you know, the early disciples, and all of them, actually, if you look at all of the early disciples, they all died because they would refuse to say that Jesus had not risen from the dead. If they had said that he had not risen, they would not have been killed, all of them. Now, 
the usual thing you're going to hear about that is that, well, they made it up, right? They made up, they, they were convinced it was true, but it wasn't really true. Well, let's go there. Uh, if, if they made it up, first option is that they actually knew Jesus had never risen from the dead, but the disciples, Peter, James, and John kind of invented it to create the church, to create a new religion, to, because they were power hungry, because they wanted to have power over people, or maybe because they, you know, they had nicer motives, but they made it up. Why would you die for something that you've made up? No one dies for a lie when they know it's a lie. You can die for a lie when you don't know it's a lie, when you sincerely believe it's true. But if you know you've made, like they huddled together in a room and they came up with the lie of the resurrection, they would not have 20, 30, 40 years later died for that lie alone. You also need to see there was no peer pressure them there. Not a single disciple, early disciple died like, in a peer pressure kind of setting where they were like, um, yeah, let's do this together. Let's die together for Jesus. They all died alone. Alone. I mean, they were killed, but they died alone. So it's not like Peter and Paul were together and Paul was telling Peter, yeah, we're going to die together. Yeah, let's do this. Let's do this. We know it's a lie, but let's do this. No, they were alone. You don't die for a lie alone, a lie that you've helped create. You don't. The fact that they were alone, there was no peer pressure by other disciples to do that. Now, if they thought it was truth, but they were deceived, then that's another ballgame. But then that brings the question to who created that as a lie? Because either, I mean, the resurrection either, either happened or didn't. You don't have an in-between, like it either did or it didn't, right? I mean, there's no alternative. It did or it didn't. If it didn't, then someone along the way made up that story that it happened and the disciples believed it. So who would make up this story? Because if it wasn't the friends of Jesus who had deserted him, I don't think his enemies would have wanted to do that. So if you look, it just, it doesn't add up. And I, this is just one of many, many reasons I could give you. Um, the other, another reason is the fact that the resurrection, the, the, the fact that it happened, it started spreading immediately. It's not 200 years later or 300 years later that people started inventing this story. You have records that are extra biblical outside of the Bible that talk about the resurrection. Josephus, the Jewish author, who's not a Christian, he was, a, he was appointed by the Romans as a historian of this particular part of the world, Judea at the time. And in his chronicles, he explains that there's this Jewish sect called the Christians that believe that their founder called Jesus had risen from the dead. He doesn't say he believes it because he doesn't. But he says that's what they're saying. And this is early on. This is, you know, in the 60s. So this is very early on, or not 1960s. Yeah. You know, yeah, the 60s, 60s, literally just 60s. Yeah. Very old 60s. Yeah. Uh, and then you've got, you know, and then you've got other things. Like, you know, if you look back, I thought the Bible had been written hundreds of years after the facts. And I thought that it had been altered, right? It had been changed. So it wasn't a trustworthy source. So you could only look at extra biblical references. Well, what if that is also not true? So I looked into, and that's very easy to do, especially nowadays, to look into how reliable the texts of the Bible are. And you come up very quickly um, when you're sincere in your search, I think you come up to with two conclusions. One is that the texts, especially of the New Testament, but also the old, but I'm, I'm focusing on what Peter wrote, what Paul wrote, you know, John and Mark and, and Matthew and Luke, 
what they wrote is what we have. There has been no change between um, the canon of scripture from the day it was written to today. So what the words that we have are the actual words that they wrote. It doesn't make them true, but it makes them like they have not been changed. It's not some monk, you know, in a Catholic monastery somewhere in the Middle Ages who made the stuff up. Like we have enough documents to prove that the texts that we have are the same that they wrote. Does not make them true, but it makes them um, like witness evidence, right? That's what they actually wrote. Now, as far as when they were written, it's very interesting when you date them back uh, and historians can do that and you can find ample evidence. I think there's overwhelming evidence truly, but you'd have to research that for yourself, that these texts were all written. I mean, the latest revelation was written in the mid nineties at the very latest. So within a lifetime um, of the actual events taking place. And that's revelation. The very first ones like Mark and Luke were written probably in the fifties. And then Paul uh, writes primarily in the 50s and 60s. So within, and Jesus died, you know, we don't really know, but 30 to 33 AD. And he was born, he was not born in zero. He was born in uh, probably minus three or four. Um, so he was not 33 when he died, but that's okay. That's like a complete piece of tree trivia. Um, but basically they were all written within a lifetime. And they're saying like many of, many times they're saying, if you don't believe us, like go talk to the witnesses because there's hundreds of people who can corroborate what we're saying because they're still alive. So they're writing this and they're saying, go check it out. Like don't, but don't take our word for it, go check it out. And this is how the movement started. It started right away. It did not start hundreds of years later. So that also, and it all, it's all based on the resurrection. The reason why I would focus on the resurrection is because Paul tells you very clearly, Paul says, if the resurrection did not happen, then our faith is in vain. Like he's, I'm quoting, he literally is saying it all hangs on the peg of the resurrection. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then our faith is in vain. And he's right. That is why the resurrection is so central, because if you can come up, if you can come to the conclusion that the resurrection did not happen, Lou, then you should not turn to Christ for faith because it's all a hoax. But if you come to the conclusion that the resurrection is true, then there's something you should do about that. And Paul states it very clearly. It either is true, it's either true or it's not. If it's not, throw the Bible to be burned. But if it is true, then do something about that. So again, I, I have many more reasons. I can send you resources that we could talk for hours, but that's just a couple of the, I don't know, 10 or 15 reasons I could come up with very easily. And I'm not making any of these up, Lou. I'm not smart enough. And there's no point because it's all been, it's all <laughs> been researched and documented. And um, so does that help a little bit? Just a sample. Yeah, thank you. It was really, it was really interesting. And yeah, it, it was, um, it, made, it made a lot of sense. <laughs> um, the thing about, you know, not dying for a lie you made up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. That's not a thing you would do. So, um. another one is, um, and just very quickly, is that if you read another way, we have to know that what the Bible is like the words we have when you, like, I have a Bible right here, when you open it, like it actually is what they wrote, um, is that again, like I, was, I started with Peter. Like, honestly, Peter is. <laughs> I can relate to him in so many ways, which is not a glorious thing to say because he really is so 
pathetic in so many ways. Sorry, buddy, but like really, right? And I, <laughs> I love Peter. I can relate to that. Like there's so many failings and shortcomings. And we know, okay, here's the thing, Lou. The only reason we know that that Peter had such failing is because he tells us. Why, if he was making the stuff up to create a new religious movement, why would he paint himself in such a bad light? Why wouldn't he make himself look good? When you're trying to make up something to, to have people follow you and people believe that what you're saying is true, you don't make yourself look bad. You don't paint yourself in a negative light. You make yourself look glorious, like Alexander the Great, right? Or like Julius Caesar. Like you make yourself look good. Peter didn't do that. Paul doesn't do that. Like if you read what they wrote, they actually paint themselves in a pretty bad light. And they basically say, I'm completely stupid and helpless and there's nothing I can do if it wasn't God doing it through me. Again, if they had written up, if this was fiction, when you write fiction in order to make yourself look good, when you write fiction in order to make yourself look good, you do not write what they wrote. The only reason why Peter wrote what he wrote is because it was true. He was committed to truth, even if it made him look bad. And that includes the resurrection. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, it, it does. Okay. Thank you. We only have a, a couple of minutes left and we have one final question that we always ask, but Stephanie, I just wanted to follow up real quick and ask you this. Um, we live in a culture that's very feelings driven. And a lot of times an objection I, I hear to faith is I don't feel it. I don't feel it. Um, how do you speak into that? Uh, I know that you have a ministry right now called Gospel Spice, and I'll be sure to share the in the show notes links to that. I know you're very passionate about sharing things like what you just did, which I love. Um, but for somebody who, you know, maybe they've come to God on an intellectual ascent, kind of like you, you know, but then life happens because life is full of ups and downs. And they're just wondering, God, I'm struggling. What do you do in that moment? Has it been both experiential and intellectual for you or has the intellectual just carried you all these 30 years oh no no absolutely not um when you get to know someone it's um i think it's like marriage right there's the wedding and then there's marriage it's the two different things and the wedding is always nice and happy and everything but then you've got to build a life with that person and that's hard work um and I think a relationship with God is the same way. It's not always easy because God, I understand everything about God, then it would not be God. Because by definition, I'm finite and he's infinite. And the moment I think I understand everything there is to know about God, it's because I've made up a God of my own making and I've put him in a little box and I've closed the lid. And that is not God. And many of us think that we, we cannot come to faith until we understand all there is to understand about God. You never will. Or if you ever come to that place where you think you understand all there is to know about God, it's because you've replaced the real God by a little box. And, and then you're disappointed by him. Of course you are. Because of course you're going to be disappointed by the box because that's not God. And so to be willing to be stretched experientially and intellectually and to say, okay, it doesn't always make sense, but I'm going to go back to what I know to be true. I'm going to go back to what I know is trustworthy because just like, a, you know, 
again, in, in any kind of significant relationship, whether it's marriage or parenting is another great example, is that you learn to trust the person because they've proven trustworthy in the past. Uh, picture a little boy who is going with his mama to the doctors to get a vaccine shot. Very relevant nowadays. <laughs> As a kid, I don't like getting my shots. It's painful. Like who likes to have a needle stuck up your arm, right? It's not fun. As a kid, you don't understand the value of it, especially when you realize your mom is paying the doctor to hurt you. Mm. I mean, right? A little kid is going to go, wait, mom, I thought you loved me, but I saw you pay that guy to sting me. How could that possibly be loving? That's how we often talk to God. God, how could you be loving to me? I saw you sting me. Mm. I saw you sting my loved ones. It hurts. Yes, it does. But the mom does it out of love because she understands it's something that the little boy doesn't. And the little boy is going to sit still and allow the doctor to hurt him because his mommy tells him it's going to be okay. His mommy knows better. And he has enough of a relationship with his mommy that he knows his mommy has proven trustworthy in the past. And therefore, even in this moment where he doesn't feel it, he doesn't feel the love at that moment. It doesn't make it untrue. It just makes it dependent on past experiences. I cannot feed on chocolate alone all day long, much as I wish. Um, that would not be good for me. <laughs> I have more of it than I need to, but I can't just feed on chocolate. Sometimes I do need a bite of broccoli once in a while, even if I don't really like broccoli all that much. It does not mean that God has stopped loving me because he will not allow me to feed on chocolate alone. It tells me he has a greater good for me. And that includes a bite of broccoli and maybe a flu shot once in a while. <laughs> So it's not really just about feelings only. It's feelings in the perspective of a greater relationship. That's really good. All right, Lou, you've got the final question. The Finding Something Real podcast is about a journey towards restoration, eternity, authenticity, and love. Of those four gifts that some people believe can truly be found in Jesus Christ, which stands out to you the most right now and why? Oh, that is a profound question. And your guests are actually able to choose among the four. Oh my goodness, that's terrible. It's like asking me between we dark chocolate. We spring it chocolates. on them at the end. <laughs> it's like different kinds of dark chocolate. I can't possibly choose. <laughs> um, well, we talked a lot about truth. So I think the theme today would make me linger towards authenticity uh, and being authentic to the truth, even if it doesn't, take you where you want it to take you. Uh, so being open to being wrong, being open to having your mind changed. Um, so authenticity in that sense, love, because um, I want to end with what the quote you, you quoted at the beginning that I say all the time is, and there's absolutely nothing you can do for God to love you more. It means you, you don't earn his love. Lou, uh, it's not a list of do's and don'ts. It's not going to church to check off a box. Uh, it's not getting baptized to check off a box. It's not uh, giving money to the poor to check a box. Um, there's nothing you can do for God to love you more. There isn't. He loves you. The fact that you exist is the proof of his love for you. Um, and then there's absolutely nothing you can do for him to love you less, which means there's no evil you can commit for him to love you less. Uh, there's no wayward path you can take that is going to diminish his love for you. And the reason for that is that if he truly is God, as the Bible portrays him, if he truly has 
thought of all of it since before the creation of time. If nothing actually takes him by surprise, which it doesn't, God created the world and every single one of us in full knowledge of everything we would ever do or say or think. He knew all of it. But despite it all, he chose to go ahead with the plan of creating all of us and of having this world be what it is today. Because it's far from perfect, that's why he came into this world, became one of us, and actually died an ugly death through after a very difficult life in order to redeem all of it. That's because of love. It's not like he created this world full of evil and then he's letting us run with it. He inserted himself into it. He felt, we're talking about feeling, he felt every bit of the evil and the pain of it. And what he did is that because he did, he's like, he unraveled it. Think of a piece, piece of cloth that you unravel from the inside. Like I'm wearing a jean jacket. If I took it off, you could see the inside of it, right? And you could see the sleeves come out. God unraveled the world. Like he turned it on its head by conquering death through the resurrection, which is why the resurrection is key. The resurrection proves that God is able to unravel everything evil in this world, even death to turn it on its head, to unravel it, to take it inside out, to show us the silver lining, to show us the back of the tapestry. In Italy, you have beautiful tapestries woven so skillfully. If you look at the back of the tapestry, all you're going to see is the ugly threads. You're not going to see the full picture of what's being made if you look at all the ugly threads in the back. But if you turn and if you look at the front of the tapestry, you're going to see this beautiful thing we are seeing the back of the tapestry. And God, because he came, became one of us, felt all the feelings that we feel, died and resurrected. He unraveled that tapestry so that now we're able to see the front of it or glimpses of it. In other words, because he saw the beautiful tapestry that he would create, he decided that all of the knots in the back of the tapestry would be worth it out of the pains of it. And he gives us a glimpse into the beauty of the front of the tapestry in Jesus. And in other words, because he saw all of it, there's nothing you can do for him to love you less because he knew, he knew all of it. If he didn't love you, he would not have created you. You would not be here. I say that's the litmus test. If you exist, it's because God chose to create you. You are not an accident. There's no such thing as accidents if you believe God is who he says to be in scripture. So that means that, and I'm, I know I'm, I'm, I'm rushing through all sorts of questions you may have, but I'm, I'm doing this on purpose because I want to poke a little bit. Because if this is true, if the mindset I'm describing to you is true, then there is complete rest in the fact that there's nothing you can do to earn God's love and there's nothing you can do to lose it. The question is, will you choose to embrace it? And so ultimately, I believe to answer your question that love really is the ultimate answer, um, but we didn't touch on it as much as we could have. So mm. we did keep talking, but. Well, well, Stephanie, I sure hope you come back on sometime. I sure have enjoyed this conversation and listening to you and your story and your heart. And Lou, as always, I just love talking with you. Um, until next time. Thank you for listening to the Finding Something Real podcast, friend. This season, we are inviting co-hosts to join me to share their personal stories and to ask their honest questions about the Christian faith. Each month, we hope to feature a different co-host and together invite guests on to share from their own faith journeys and experiences. 
Friend, the Bible says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I believe with all my heart that Jesus Christ is still in the restoration, eternity, authenticity, and love business. I know not everyone has experienced that, but if you're curious at all about what's so great about Jesus, I hope you come back next week as we continue on a journey towards finding something real in relationship with Him. Until next time.